You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. And I have a few quick updates before we jump into our topic today. One is that we have expanded our reach. We are now ubiquitous in terms of where <laughs> you can find us. That is, of course, we were on already iTunes, TuneIn, PodSearch, Google Podcasts, Google Play, Spreaker, Spotify, SoundCloud, and things like that. And now we are also on a few new platforms are on one called Deezer and CastBox. And for those people who listen to Pandora, Pandora added podcasts relatively recently. So we are now on Pandora and we are on iHeartRadio. So as far as I can tell, there is no place that you can't find us. Yes. And if there is a place that you can't find us, we'll find that place and be there. So (laughs) our goal for this podcast is to be omnipresent. Exactly. (laughs) Everywhere and unavoidable as much as possible. (laughs) Another thing is, and we've mentioned this before, but wanted to let everyone know that we have increased some of the available things on our Patreon page. So for those people who would like to support the show by throwing a little money our way, that comes with some benefits. So for example, you will get uncut versions of these episodes. We'll often have false starts or we'll have these big long segments where we go on tangents with jokes that will get cut or just various things like that where we try and pare down the episode into something smaller and more consumable for the actual publication but if you're interested in a little bit more of the background then there are those episodes we will release that are just uncut and available to listen to as much as you'd like in addition to that we also record on video the episodes that we do that's also available to our patreon supporters and at increasing levels you go all the way up to being able to have a hangout with us online live stream the shows as well as suggest topics and even participate in a discussion with us if you want to go all the way up to that level. And one thing I would like to point out is that you don't actually have to go to one of those levels and then just commit to staying there forever. If you wanted to just like throw down a whole bunch of money on Patreon and say, I just want to do this one time appearance thing and then I'm just going to leave altogether or I'm just going to go down to the bare minimum on the support, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to think about the only way to use Patreon is to have one level and stick to it forever. It can be kind of however you want to use it. So just to let you know that that's an option out there. And you know, the goal is not to just make money. That's not what we're trying to say. It's like all the money that comes in goes back into improving the podcast. We're able to bring on more staff, more people to help with research. We're able to possibly in the future, create new merchandise. You know, there's a lot of really cool things that kind of come out of this. So it really goes a long way in helping to improve the content and the quality of what we're doing for you all. We are specifically working on, I'm glad you brought that up, some merch so that you can proudly wear around a podcast shirt, which I know that some people do. And I'm happy to to have you do that. But yes, Shane's absolutely right. We have never taken money for this. Anything we've ever gotten, donations or grants or otherwise, has always gone right back into the project to make it better. If you've been listening for quite a while, you may have noticed our audio quality, I think, has gradually improved over the last couple of years and hopefully will continue to improve until it is perfect and just crystal (laughs) crystals in your ear, (laughs) whatever that means. (laughs) I think that's a reference to vertigo. (laughs) That's the goal. Everything that comes in goes right back into the podcast so that you all get a better product overall. So that's really the goal here. And of course, you don't have to 
If you don't have the money, but you still want to support the show, things like leaving us ratings and reviews, posting about us on social media, sharing us with other people that you think might like us, those are all things that also help. So, and if you appreciate what we're doing, we appreciate your help. And, you know, that's all. Just wanted to throw that out there that we want to be a little collaborative. Yeah, absolutely. It's a community. We've built a little community around this and hopefully that continues to grow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and transition then to what we actually intend to be talking about today. And this will be, I think, a pretty succinct discussion. We've covered various aspects of this topic in the past, and I think we're going to be able to elaborate on some of those today, which is always a fun thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited about this one. Great. You're the perfect person to ask about this. So what is your experience working in schools? My experience has been pretty varied. I spend a lot of time working in right now, working in public schools on different levels, you know, working with individuals in gen ed classes versus like special needs classes or or what are called EBD classes, usually working with kids that have challenging behavior in those circumstances. I think one of my favorite ones was working in a private school and it was an Orthodox Jewish school. So when I would go in and work, I had to wear a kippah and I had to cover up my tattoos and I'm like dying because it's summer. I'm like, (laughs) it's so hot. It was a really interesting perspective because, you know, I had to intervene during like, you know, the class that they were teaching Hebrew and I had no idea how to help the student because I did not speak Hebrew (laughs) and I missed the first 10 lessons. So my experience has been really, really varied, but really interesting. So your role in those settings was primarily to, you weren't the primary teacher in those classrooms. You were there to like help the teachers and the staff and the kids. Yeah. So my role has always been kind of like a consultant coming in and helping out and providing some tips and tricks and then leaving. Cool. Yeah. I can say for myself, I really haven't had a lot of classroom experience that was at the level of primary education. We're talking about kindergarten, preschool, elementary school, middle school, high school. I've only ever been in those environments in a capacity similar to yours, where I was sort of a consultant. I did teach like one class once for someone that I knew who was teaching a high school class and wanted me to teach one day on the psychology class, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was sort of like a career thing too. I was there to talk about my job and anyway, totally off topic. (laughs) The point being that I have not really been in schools all that much. Nevertheless, people like you, other consultants and other teachers, paras and things like that, they'll use these specific strategies to help navigate the behaviors that are often encountered in school settings, especially, as you said, those challenging behaviors that might occur. And I'm happy to say this was a topic that was requested by one of our listeners. And so we're following up on that. I hope that we do this the kind of justice that you're looking for in terms of our coverage of what we're going to be talking about today, which is positive and negative reinforcement. Oh, I love this topic. As a matter of fact, the unit that I'm teaching right now in my college courses is all about positive and negative reinforcement and positive negative punishment, kind of discussing that. So like, this is such a timely topic, a timely episode. I'm like living in that realm right now. It's great. And you wouldn't think maybe that there was such a thing as positive and negative punishment, but you'll see pretty clearly how that is once we start getting into these terms and identifying what they mean. And specifically, we're talking about how these strategies are used in a school setting. And so we will, of course, define positive and negative reinforcement. And then we're going to give a lot of examples of positive and negative reinforcement just so you can help understand and cement in what those topics are. And then we'll talk about what to expect when you're trying to use those techniques. And we'll look at some of the research that's been done. Yeah, I think that's great. So let's roll with it. 
Perfect. All right, Shane, let's get into the first part here, which of course is to define our terms. What is a technical definition of reinforcement? Just reinforcement. Reinforcement is any event that occurs after a behavior or action that increases the likelihood that that behavior will occur again in the future or occur in that context again. So ultimately what this is saying is something happens after a behavior that behavior will happen again. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about this, especially with respect to school, is that there's something that you could call good that happens as a result of some performance, and then that motivates, again, we're in schools here, so that motivates the students to do that similar performance again when given an opportunity to do so. And so let's just pick something small, for example, like turning in homework might have some positive outcome for the teacher, we'll say a good, pleasant outcome where the teacher would give them a good grade or specifically recognize them in front of the class for doing that or will recognize that in some other way that helps them feel good for turning in their homework on time. And so then next time they have an opportunity to turn in homework on time, they do it. And because they're more likely to have that pleasant outcome. Yeah. So an example I've seen is like in college classes where a professor might say, if 95% of the students, 95% of the class gets their paper turned in on time, they'll get five points extra credit. Oh, there you go. You know? Yeah. So that's one thing that is kind of used in that school setting where it's like, okay, if everybody gets their homework in on time or everybody turns in their permission slips for this, then we'll get a pizza party or something like that. There's like some really cool contingencies around that that people will use. That's a cool example. Another way to think about this is the idea that talking about just reinforcement, not necessarily positive. We'll get to that in a moment, but is that uh, rewards motivate students to work to earn those rewards again. And this is also sometimes referred to if you're just speaking with teachers or people in like a school setting as encouragement and sometimes also positive verbal reinforcement when there are things like praise and things like encouragement that are intended to motivate that behavior by specifically praising a particular response in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically just saying like, thank you for turning this in. Thank you for raising your hand. There's a lot of things like you'll hear like small little comments in classrooms that are designed to kind of perpetuate that behavior. Yes. Oh, I like that. Perpetuate. That's a good term. Yeah. Okay. So then what does it mean when we say positive versus negative? Oh, so this is where I think everybody gets hung up. Yeah, definitely. When we kind of talk about these terms, positive and negative, I, I want the listener out there to just kind of forget that the terms positive and negative generally are used for good and bad. Right. Because we're not describing it like that. We're talking about a very specific type of what we would describe as like a stimulus change or some kind of change in the environment. So essentially positive, what that means is something is added. So think of it as a plus sign. Yeah, this is kind of a mathematical idea, the positive negative thing. Yeah, exactly. So something is added and they get something for the action. Something occurs, something is presented or introduced into the environment after some kind of action. So that could be something like praise. That could be something like some kind of candy when something goes well. That could be high fives, handshakes. It could be a whole lot of things, but basically something is added into the environment after a behavior occurs. All right, right. So just to say back what you just said, we would call it reinforcement if it increases that behavior and it's specifically positive reinforcement if the thing that increases that behavior is a new thing that was given Yeah. as a consequence or as a response to that whatever performance or action took place. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of times when I describe positive reinforcement, I describe it as reward. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, that's like a nice and easy one. People understand the term reward. So it's like when, when you're talking about positive reinforcement, you're usually talking about some kind of reward for a behavior. Okay. All right. And negative. So when we talk about negative, negative is the other side of that coin, right? Where you talk about something is removed. So think of negative as a minus sign. And essentially something is taken away or they got out of doing something unpleasant. 
And what ends up happening is because they get to avoid or something is removed, the behavior increases. So think of it like if you go to a concert and it's too loud and you put earplugs in your ears, right? Yep. You're removing that aversive sound. You're removing that sound that's too loud and it hurts. So you're negatively reinforcing that behavior, right? Or like if anybody's ever taken an aspirin, right? Oh, yeah. You can engage in taking medicine to reduce pain, reduce discomfort. You relieve yourself of that. Right. And so that's a lot of what negative reinforcement is. Eventually in the future, if you have a headache, you'll take medication. Right. Because if your head hurts, it'll go away. I always liked the example of just calling negative reinforcement relief because, yes, it is getting rid of that bad thing. And so to use your example of the aspirin for if you had a headache, then negative reinforcement, the behavior that is being negatively reinforced is taking the aspirin. Yep. Right. Exactly. Because when you took the aspirin, then the unpleasant situation the headache went away and so now next time you have a headache you're likely to take aspirin again because it makes the headache go away and so it's just a clear example of that what happened was something was taken away in this case a headache and that that increased the likelihood of a behavior occurring that is taking aspirin so possibly another way to think about this is that if it's positive then they're working to earn a reward which can be a lot of things like praise or good grades or As I mentioned earlier, recognition for their achievement. It could also include support from their peers if there's like a point system in place or even money, probably from parents like allowances or being paid for doing chores, that sort of thing. A school is pretty unlikely to pay their students (laughs) or even just feeling good after accomplishing something. Those are all things that could be thought of as that positive reinforcer. And I think it's important too when we talk about this to think of it like because people get the term bribery mixed up into this. Yes. Stop bribery. We're not talking about bribery. We're not talking about like there's a problem already occurring and then you're convincing somebody to change their behavior. Like you're encouraging and you're delivering something based on those things. And so some examples like you just gave, like things like money, support from peers, high fives. When we go to work, we get a paycheck that could be considered some kind of positive reinforcement because we continue to go to work to get paid. Right. I think about going back to like our podcast, you know, we're here, we have done this for, I mean, you've done this for many many years now you know (laughs) and why do we keep doing it two years and three months yeah but who's counting (laughs) who's counting it so why do we keep doing that because there's some kind of reward here right our conversations are partially rewarding right there's some kind of reward there like we get cool feedback from the listeners that's some good reward right we get to contact new information that's some new reward Absolutely. That's something that happens. So there's a lot of really cool things that happen as a result that are all in this context will be positive reinforcers because our behavior has continued or increased. I also think that one way this often shows up in schools and just going back to that as a place for examples is where there will be students who they follow all their teachers instructions and they do all their work on time and they try really hard and they get the answers right. And as a result of that, they tend to get more privileges. Mm -hmm. The general orientation of the student is when they ask for something, they're more likely to get it. And the teacher might also tell them things like, you did such a great job. You followed all my instructions. I really appreciate how helpful you were. You can have extra time to go play yeah, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, giving the sort of extra level of attention, the extra level of privilege. And these can be sort of stretched out over time too, where there are things down the road that allow that student to maybe negotiate better for themselves. And again, like those are all wrapped up in this really complex network of things that are being added to their environment because of their performance. And those are all those positive reinforcers. And so they're more likely to maintain that momentum. And you can even just as sort of a thought experiment, I know that thought experiments, there was a joke I heard that 
someone was said that the great thing about thought experiments is they always turn out the way you want them to <laughs> sort of a thought experiment about this would be if you imagine a child who did work really hard and they just even though they were working hard they were following directions they were doing all the right things they never got privileges they never got recognition they never got rewards they just kept contacting either nothing or even sometimes punishment and what that student is likely to do in the future are they really going to keep trucking along getting nothing and no recognition and just this constant uphill battle if there's no support anywhere Probably not, you know, right. There's some pretty tenacious people out there, but usually what you find out is they have support from somewhere. They've got a peer group support or parental support or something where they're having some people who are maintaining their momentum. But if you strip all of that away, you can imagine that those behaviors usually die off fairly quickly. This probably brings us into a good discussion eventually on altruism and whether or not it exists. <laughs> that is such a good idea. I want to write that down. So I remember. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, people continue to do things because they get something out of it, right? Or they avoid doing things because those things are punishing and they don't get something out of it. It's interesting that you say that too, because I have specifically heard people who will say things like, if you're doing anything because you get something out of it, that is immoral to do that. And my response to that is kind of surprised because everything we do, we do because we get something out of it. And it doesn't have to be something like social recognition. Like I said, one of the things that we get out of some of the things we do is just the feeling of accomplishment that we did something we sought out to do. It feels good. Exactly. We always get something out of it. So when we get to altruism. That's a different, that'll be a different day. I can't wait to get to that one. Though. That'll be fun. Yeah, that's a great one. But we're on a great topic right now. Yeah, exactly. Which is the positive negative reinforcement. Okay, <laughs> let's say a little bit more then about the negative reinforcement example. So as I mentioned, you could think of the positive as working to earn something. Well, if it's negative, then you can think of it as they're working to avoid or to get out of something. And so maybe a way of thinking about this is taking a break or maybe successfully avoiding reprimand or punishment, something like that. Yeah, so like in a school setting, you might have a kid that will stay quiet, sit in the back of the classroom, probably not answer questions in the classroom because they want to avoid some kind of social punishment, right? There's some relief. They get to avoid those situations that are not so cool. Like, I don't know how you were in school. I didn't have a problem reading out loud in class, but I know there were kids in my class that would have a hard time with that. So they would engage in some behaviors to avoid having to do that, right? They, maybe they're going on bathroom breaks during that time. Right. Or, you know, maybe all of a sudden they have laryngitis. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, so, I got strep throat today. It's like, Just uh, spontaneously before this class started. <laughs> <laughs> right. So ultimately, though, what's happening there is like they're getting relief. They're not having to do the thing that they don't want to do. Right. And so if they successfully avoid that situation that they don't want to experience, then whatever it took for them to be able to avoid it, they're more likely to try something like that again in the future. And what's interesting about this, too, is you can get the exact same general response to a different kind of outcome being either positive or negative. So for the student who works hard to turn in their homework on time because they get recognition, another teacher might instead have a severe consequence, like some kind of punishment or reprimand in place if you don't turn your homework in time and there is no recognition for doing it on time. And so then students work really hard to turn their homework in on time to avoid that punisher. And so in both cases, the behavior you see increase is turning in their paper or their homework on time. I keep saying paper, but I think it's just because I teach at college level and they are always <laughs> turning in papers. The turn yeah. in their homework on time is to instead just avoid that aversive consequence. And so both of those behaviors are essentially the same of turn homework in on time, but the process by which they got there is different. Yeah, absolutely. 
So when you talk about negative reinforcement, kind of going back to that, remember, it's all about relief, right? It's always about getting away from that thing that you don't want. And sometimes it's really simple. Like, why do you scratch an itch? You know, why do you eat when you're really, really hungry? It's not just to get food. It's also to avoid those hunger pangs. Right. Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things that you can build into that. when you talk about relief. Like, I don't know. Why do you not answer your ex-girlfriend's phone calls? <laughs> you know, there might be some avoidance there. Like, I would like to avoid those if I can. So when we talk about those types of things, you know, when we talk about relief, it's all about getting away from that thing that we don't like, you know, and we do it kind of every day without even realizing it. If you've ever called in sick to work and you weren't sick. Yeah. Or if you've ever taken a different path, you've walked down a different sidewalk or driven a different way to avoid traffic or to avoid certain people, or, you know, there's a lot of different things that we can use as a description of what negative reinforcement will look like. I was thinking about, I was in a class in high school where they had some thing where you could at the end of the year, you could have one day where you either got to skip a test or rather than do a normal like lecture that day, then it would just be like a free period during school. And it was something like that. But whatever it was, it was get out of doing something if everyone in the class hit a certain criteria. And so sort of as the one example you gave earlier. And so I think it was the like getting just a free day because I sort of vaguely remember having we got to play cards in class or something like that. But that tells you how old I am. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones to play on. But there's no technology time. No, there's no technology time. So Anyway, yeah, we worked really hard to hit this goal to essentially get out of having a class. And so in a way, this looked like a positive thing because we were working to earn that reward, but the reward was get out of doing work. And so you could certainly classify that in that sort of realm of the negative reinforcers. And I think that actually leads to one critical feature of this discussion is that you can understand that these concepts, the positive and negative reinforcement, are largely two sides of the same coin, which is to say that if you can find positive reinforcement, you can probably identify a negative reinforcer too. You can talk about, in that example that I gave with my class that I was in, you could talk about it as positive reinforcement and gaining access to a day of doing fun things. So that was something that was added. And simultaneously, it was getting out of doing something unpleasant. And so you have both of those things working simultaneously. And that's often the case when you think about the scratching and itch example, you get both to remove the aversive situation of the itch, as well as you get the pleasant situation of feeling good, I guess, or at least returning to normal. And so there's kind of always those two. I think that's an important piece to recognize is usually when we identify what's motivating somebody, it's usually a combination of things. Yes. You know, when people are engaging in a certain response or a certain set of behaviors, when they're doing certain things, they usually get more than one thing out of it. Very rarely do you find a behavior or, you know, very rarely do you find a motivation that is solely and specifically one thing. Yeah. The only circumstance I could think of right now is that I would be working for pizza, right? There are some circumstances where I'm like, I am going to get pizza. That is my sole motivation. <laughs> that is the only thing. I've already eaten, so I'm not hungry. I just want pizza. Maybe that's a stretch because pizza is my favorite food. But at the end of the day, like there are very rarely moments where it's just a single reinforcer, right? It's just a single contingency. It's a single situation that somebody's working towards. Usually you can find both of those pieces. Yep. Yeah, and uh, just another example similar to the homework one I gave is a student might work to earn a good grade while also simultaneously be working to avoid a bad grade, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about that. They're working to get that A, but they're also working not to get an F. Yeah. 
<laughs> a student working to earn recognition for some achievement is going to avoid the disappointment of failing to meet that achievement. If a student is working to earn a break, getting out of something they don't like, or are they working to get something that they do like? Well, again, it's probably both. You know, they might get out of an assignment or task that is unpleasant and also get access to their break and to do more preferred activities. So if you think about someone who they're working to earn time out of class, well, it's not that they get out of doing class and they just sit there and stare at the wall blankly doing nothing. Like they get time out of class and then they do something that's more fun, right? Yeah. And so it makes it more valuable in that way. And there might be those who are willing to just sit there and do absolutely nothing. They're probably people who in their job, they will work very hard to sit there and do absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that could be how powerful that negative reinforcer is. I mean, at the end of the day, think of it like this. I don't know if you've ever if you're ever around a kid that say they're playing video games they're hanging out they're playing video games maybe they are playing um i don't know fortnite is the big thing i guess right now that everybody's into yeah so maybe they're playing fortnite and you ask them to go do their laundry okay (laughs) yeah and what happens if they do not get up and go do their laundry right it's a couple of different things they're avoiding something right they get relief from doing their laundry but they're also getting access they're getting positive reinforcement in the form of playing video games so they get continued exposure and continued access to that thing they want as well as avoiding the thing they don't want such a good example i was just thinking a very similar parallel to that is thinking about when you're trying to have kids come in from recess thinking of when you're out of elementary school and they're out there they're playing with their friends they're running around being crazy and and having a great time and then you tell them they have to go back inside and work and of course you're going to see them delaying doing any of those such things they're not excited to go back inside and do work and stop playing right So you're going to see a lot of that sort of avoidance of following directions. You might even see a little bit of stubbornness, maybe some emotional behavior in terms of like, you're taking away this good thing that I love so much. I hate you. You're the worst. (laughs) Yeah. And so looking at it in that way, in terms of right now, the student is faced with the choice of I can either do this thing that I enjoy. If I continue playing, even though I'm supposed to go inside, I get more time doing things I enjoy and I get to avoid time doing things I don't enjoy. All of a sudden, it makes perfect sense that they do that, and it also starts to lend itself well to what could you do to help them deal with that situation? Because just making them miserable by using some sort of punishment, well, that maybe will reduce what that situation is like outside where it's no longer fun, but there's a lot of implications of that. An alternative strategy is have some kind of reward for following directions to line up or some kind of reward for walking nicely all the way back to your classroom and some kind of reward for being to the classroom on time and getting to work on time. And so you've got to figure that you're transitioning from fun break activity to not fun aversive activity. (laughs) And, And how do I make it so that it's easier for that transition by making those environments relatively similar, not by making the playground and recess super boring and horrible, but instead by making the the room and following those instructions as rewarding, or at least somewhat comparably rewarding to doing the fun things. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the bread and butter of being able to use reinforcement strategies, right? Is figuring out what's reinforcing about that thing. And then in comparison, make the thing, that they're moving towards or the thing that you want to see improve, make that cool, right? Like recess is cool. Yeah. We know recess is cool. It's the best when you're a kid. Absolutely. You know, and as an adult, I've been to like trampoline parks and that's pretty cool too. (laughs) So like recess, I think depending on the context is still pretty cool. So how do you make 
the thing that's not cool, cool. How do you make work cool? How do you build that up? And that's really like, if you understand what reinforcement is and understand how it works in the context, then you can kind of leverage that and make it so that being the line leader is the coolest thing that a kid can do. Or when everybody walks quietly, they can earn a popcorn party, you know, as they earn kernels for doing well. You know, there's a lot of really cool things that you can build into these systems that will work really well to help improve those circumstances. I love those ideas. Okay, so Shane, how is negative reinforcement different than punishment? Oh, okay. So when we talk about reinforcement and punishment, we talked about kind of the idea that reinforcement is always the, there's always an improvement in behavior, right? There's always an increase in behavior there. Whenever we talk about punishment, it's always some kind of decrease, right? There, You're talking about some decrease in the behavior, you're talking about some reduction in the behavior, but ultimately the problem is that when you start using punishers, you're not teaching the person what to do. Right? You're teaching them what not to do. You're teaching them to not engage in a behavior, but you're not teaching them what to do instead. So what ends up happening is, you know, when you start taking away privileges, when you send students to the office, when you take away rewards, other disciplinary things, and you start kind of like trying to suppress a behavior, it's not negative reinforcement. People describe it as negative reinforcement all the time. What ends up happening is they're going to avoid the threat of punishment. They're going to avoid that person. They're going to develop a bad rapport with that person. I mean, think about any time you've been formally punished by somebody in your life. They've taken away a privilege. They've taken away something that you liked. How did you react to that person? Not warmly. <laughs> yeah, I don't like those people. Like, I'm sorry, it's not cool, right? So what ends up happening is the student starts avoiding that punishment, which for them is negative reinforcement. They're going to engage in behaviors to avoid that aversive thing, right? Right. The punishment scenario itself is what you're saying is that that in and of itself is not negative reinforcement, but the student might work to avoid that punishing situation and in avoiding it, they might have that negative reinforcement of relief from that punisher. Right, exactly. And I will say this, there's nothing wrong with punishment. There are just better ways to improve behavior. And we'll, we do have a planned topic coming up that is a deep dive on punishment. But yes, just a couple things that reprimanding a student or disciplining them in some way when they have done something undesirable with the intention of decreasing that undesirable behavior, that's punishment. That's not negative reinforcement. However, if you have punishers or some punitive system in place, students might work to avoid those punishers and in successfully doing so, contact negative reinforcement. And so I think there is a way of thinking about negative reinforcement and how it's related to punishment, mostly in that if they can avoid that punisher, then they might be motivated to work to uh, avoid that. But the kind of variability you get when people and students are avoiding doing something can be very, very broad. So you're not necessarily going to get a behavior targeted toward what you want if it's just avoiding the things you don't want. You will get a very, very wide spectrum in what they start doing to get creative and avoiding those punishers. Yeah. Ultimately, what ends up happening is reinforcement helps kind of guide the behaviors you want to see, right? Like you're contacting behaviors, you're shaping up behaviors that you want to see happen. Right. Punishment doesn't give you that option. Punishment just, it's like squeezing a balloon, right? So what happens when you squeeze a balloon and it doesn't pop? The air just goes in a whole bunch of different directions. Right. Whereas like- That's a good example. I mean, that's exactly what it is though, if you think about it, right? So I'm telling you what not to do. Okay, Abraham, don't talk into the mic. Then what's going to happen next? <laughs> okay, so you scream. <laughs> so you have all these different responses that can happen out of it. That's why typically reinforcement strategies tend to be superior in helping improve behavior because they give direction and purpose and really give the learner, the student, the person that's contacting it, you know, some kind of motivation to engage in the behavior you want to see. 
Now, this can look a couple of different ways in schools. So there's two general ways that we're going to talk about this here. One is positive and negative reinforcement might be programmed. That is, there's a specific strategy or intervention to use or incidental. That is, you can have these programmed positive reinforcers and incidental positive reinforcers, or you can have those programmed negative reinforcers or incidental negative reinforcers. And those programmed reinforcers that are strategically and intentionally reused to reward and motivate behavior. So what's an example of this you can think of? So right now, my son is in first grade and what he does or what the class does is when they walk in line and they walk in quietly, they earn popcorn kernels. They put them in this jar and when it hits a certain line, they get a popcorn party. So it's very specific. It's targeting a specific set of behaviors, which is quiet walking in line, right? They walk quietly, they walk in line, they're not skipping. There's a whole set of behaviors that are around it. And that's programmed specifically by the teacher. When they do well, they get kernels and they add kernels to that jar. Yeah, absolutely. I think another one is the use of, especially in like elementary schools, is stickers or they'll do these big colorful award things that are supposed to recognize a student for doing things. Whatever it was, it was planned ahead of time to be a intervention or a strategy used to try and reward that particular behavior you wanted to see. Yeah. Another example too, because those are kind of more like their positive reinforcers. We can go back to negative reinforcers. That might be like break times. That might be technology time. Like, you know, that might be adding or removing some of the workload that the students are coming in contact with. Like homework passes is another one that I used to see a lot where, you know, you get like, you know, students that are doing really well, they get a homework pass that they can turn in to skip homework. Yeah. That, is an awesome one. I would have loved to have that when I was in high school. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then there are these incidental reinforcers. And those are things that just happen accidentally or as part of the action or the circumstance of that action from the student. And this can include things like feeling good when you do something good or feeling relieved when you avoid something aversive or how the student's peers react to their behavior or when you successfully accomplish something or even honestly, the familiarity with a routine can be something that is kind of an incidental reinforcer is being able to sort of perform the same routine repeatedly in a way that, especially if it's a comfortable routine to do that. So those are some examples of things that happen just sort of incidentally. You have any other thoughts or any other examples? Yeah. I mean, I think we're talking a lot about behavior that we want to see improve, but we can talk about the behavior that we don't want to see too and how they come into contact with incidental reinforcers. I mean, I've worked with young elementary school kids and the first time you hear a kid fart in the classroom and everybody laughs, all of a sudden that kid is going to be like, Oh, that's all I got to do. If you really talk about like <laughs> class clowns and stuff like that, that all has to do with that incidental reinforcer, right? The students laughing, they're attending to that student, that student's kind of acting up a little bit more as a result. Super good example. Incidental reinforcers come into contact with all sorts of behaviors. That's why we do them. But you've got that one student that's always like, why are they the class clown? And you're like, because they get, they get a lot of attention for the crazy stuff they do. Absolutely. All right. And then programmed reinforcers, these have been pretty frequently researched. One of the most basic types that you'll see in the research is just praise, right? This is basically things like great job. I really appreciate how well you worked on this or how hard you worked on this or anything that is those sort of verbal encouragements or any verbal communication intended to reward behavior. And this can be stated praise or also written praise, you know, comments on papers or little notes or something that could be handed out or even communications that are sent home to parents. However, there are some descriptions of what you might think of as nonverbal praise, which can be gestures, looks, or sort of general recognition. So when you say something right and the teacher might even just nod approvingly, that can function as a example of 
praise and sort of a reward that could happen. And therefore, the student's more likely to do that. So I like to give the example of raising their hand to volunteer an answer. The teacher calls on someone in their class to answer some question, and a student does so, and they get it right or whatever, and the teacher recognizes immediately, like, yes, thank you, that was really good. And next time the student has a thought that they know what the answer is, they're more likely to raise their hands now because that contacted success. And the very first time that I tried teaching in a Psych 101 class in an undergrad level, and someone raised their hand and gave me an answer, and I didn't do this on purpose, but I was like, no, that's wrong. And then that student just didn't even try again. <laughs> you know, I felt so bad because... I could have recognized that they tried to contribute and that would have been important and then discussed how to think about it differently rather than just shutting it down. And that's just, you know, something that can happen. Yeah. And that's the thing with praise is praise is really effective and praise should be behavior specific, but praise can go wrong. <laughs> yes, it can. There are people that don't like praise. They don't like public praise. They don't like being publicly recognized. They have a hard time with that. So be mindful of that. Just because it's praise doesn't mean that it's a positive reinforcer or a reinforcer at all. You still want to go back to like what the effect on behavior is. Did the behavior improve? Did the behavior increase? If you started praising somebody and their behavior decreased, praise is not an effective reinforcer. That is an extremely good point. Something that I did not even think at all when we started preparing research for this was that the reinforcer for one person is not a reinforcer for the next person necessarily. And it might not even stay a reinforcer for that person consistently. It might work a few times or might gradually fade out. But yeah, as you said, there are people who, and there are certain contexts in which you may not want to be praised. I personally don't really like being thanked when I've been coerced into doing something. <laughs> you know, when someone forces me to do something afterwards, they're like, thanks. And I'm like, I'll tell you where you can stick it. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> yeah. My thing is like, I'm very much so of the avoidant nature. So if I'm working on something, I like to avoid being in trouble. I like to avoid those things. Like praise doesn't really work for me that well. What works really well is avoiding like that extra task or closer deadlines and stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff that I like to do. So it's interesting when you start thinking about like individual reinforcers. Yeah. So going back to the idea that Praise should be behavior specific. What I'm saying is it should state what the action is being recognized. What's actually happening when you say good job, it's good job what? You know, because the idea of saying good job doesn't really tell you anything. It doesn't indicate why they're saying it. It doesn't indicate why the teacher is happy that something happened. It doesn't really say anything. Yeah, it's very vague. It's so vague. I mean, good job. What does that even mean? I'm at school. I'm not doing a job. <laughs> so I have that, you know, when you're working with a learner, when you say good job, it should be good job. What? And so an example would be like, good job working on this the whole time that I asked you, I appreciate you working and attending to this task or however you might say it, but it gets really specific. And what's great about this is that the research shows specifically Royer et al. in 2018, it demonstrated that behavior specific praise meets the criteria for evidence-based practice too. So on top of it being effective, it is an evidence-based practice. Yep. And also there were some publications in organizational behavior management that show that praise is actually one of the most preferred reinforcers at a workplace. Yeah, it's recognition for doing a good job. People like to feel like they're doing well the things that they're putting their time and effort toward doing. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> and I mean, there are like a million varieties of strategies to use positive reinforcement in the classroom. So we're not going to list all of them here, but some of them that we really like are catch them being good. And this is essentially what it sounds like is rather than when you notice they're doing something wrong and trying to jump on it in the moment is you catch the things that they're doing right because most of the time they're doing correct things, but they get so little recognition for doing those things that they're going to start looking for some of those rewards, especially things like attention, which is 
often a very powerful reward for younger kids that they'll find something else that will give that same reward. So instead, you know, just incidentally, periodically catching them. Great job. You've been sitting and working in your chair this whole entire time. And I didn't even have to ask you to do that. That was awesome. Things like that are a great way to just to catch those moments. When I was a kid, my parents didn't really, they only hung up family photos and stuff on the walls in our house. But I remember in our kitchen, I don't know why we had this. It was this poster in the kitchen and it said, people always remember me for the things I do wrong, but never remember me for the things I do right. Wow. I don't know why that stuck with me because it was just a very strange poster. It was an orangutan. It had nothing to do with anything. I hope they still have it. But the phrase itself always stuck with me because it was like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. Like we spend so much time attending to the things that go wrong. But if we took a little bit of time to praise the things that we wanted to see more often, it's less likely that those things that were wrong or were problematic would continue to happen. And this is a total side tangent to that, but this showed up recently in my world, so I had to share it. There's the idea that we are, in a way, hardwired to recognize when things are going wrong. And I think you could certainly point to there being a evolutionary reason for being sensitive to aversive things, such that you're likely to notice them and avoid them because those aversive things often cost you your life or your well-being. And I think it's also worth pointing out that if that was your norm, you might actually be more likely to recognize when things are going well, because if things are constantly going wrong, then when something goes really right, that's now going to stand out to you. So I have a hard time being able to parse out whether or not the fact that we recognize things going wrong is because it is something we would just do, or if it's because it's the novelty of the fact that generally things are going really well. So when things don't go well, it is particularly obvious that things did not go well. Yeah. It's, it's like jarring almost. Yeah. So another strategy here for using positive reinforcement is called the good behavior game, but this is not the kind of board game that I might seek out, but it's instead something different. (laughs) So what this generally looks like is It is a strategy that teachers will use where either the whole class works together or else the class might be divided into teams and there is some kind of reward for displaying appropriate on-task school behaviors. And so there might be a whole thing for the entire class where if I'm going to randomly pick someone and if that person is doing the right thing at this time, then the class gets a reward. Or if I see that I only need to remind you to keep working two or less times in this hour, then the whole class earns this reward. Or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that this could look. You know, it's just basically finding some kind of group rule or group outcome that everybody's working together to earn. And you can base it off a lot of different things. And again, you can also divide the class into teams where teams are given points for the appropriate behavior and are competing with their points. I generally try to avoid having students compete with one another in my classrooms, but that is a way that this could look. And really the whole point of the game is just that you get them invested and motivating to do the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing because they're working together as part of a sort of cohesive group. Yeah, that sounds great. There's a lot of good things that come out of that besides the end result, right? There's a lot of pro-social skills that come out of that too. Yep. And some other quick strategies for positive reinforcement that are used in the classroom is something called pivoting. Very basically, just when somebody is doing the inappropriate thing, you recognize the students who are doing the appropriate thing and place the encouragement and reward on those students. And then that can often motivate the students who are doing the inappropriate thing to pivot their behavior toward doing the appropriate thing. There is, of course, student recognition. Grades can be a relatively simple positive reinforcer. Points, fun activities, using tokens. I was in a school where they had these 
I don't know if they called them bucks, but they kind of looked like a bill of some kind where it was the school colors on this little note. And when a student did something that was particularly outstanding or even really just something they wanted to recognize, they would earn these little bucks that would go into a lottery to like earn some prizes. And a whole bunch of students could earn some of these prizes that were done periodically. And it was, I don't know, it was kind of a cool idea. I worked at a school, they had dolphin dollars because their mascot was a dolphin. Nice. And just speaking, kind of talking about token economies, if you're not familiar with what a token economy is, just look at your bank account (laughs) because money is generally money and like economic stuff like that is all token economy because money means nothing at all money is simply representative of what you can get with it yeah and that's really what token economies are so one study from july 2019 found that not only the use of praise was effective but who was praised was especially important in things like high engagement and low disruption so essentially what they were looking at was students that were at high risk for emotional behavioral disorders or abd circumstances are more sensitive to praise and reprimands with respect to their engagement performance and disruptive behavior so if they're getting praised more often and for the things that the professionals in the setting want to see improve they usually tend to be very sensitive to that particular praise Another way of thinking about that, too, is that those students who needed more support did better when they got more support. Yep, there you go. Funny how that works. Empirical evidence is in. Furthermore, teachers are sensitive to the effects of using positive over aversive strategies. And specifically, teachers that use more of those good sort of positive strategies, they tend to report feeling more energetic, more satisfied with their work, there is less burnout, and they generally report being happier. Whereas teachers that use a high amount of reprimands and those aversive contingencies and rules, they tend to burn out more easily. They tend to report experiencing fatigue, dissatisfaction with their job, and are generally less happy. It is a high energy demand to be constantly trying to use a punitive system with people. And you also are going to have very, very poor relationships with those people most of the time. It makes it a kind of toxic place to be. Just put that in perspective for a second. Is it easier to praise somebody for doing something well, or is it easier to put in some kind of punishment procedure where you have to constantly monitor whether or not that punishment procedure is being implemented? If you ground somebody I think about this with kids all the time. If I grounded my kids, I would have to watch them nonstop to make sure they don't contact all the contingencies that are related to being grounded versus, hey, you just didn't earn it, but here's this and this and this, and here's some praise. Thank you for doing this. This is cool. Here's da-da-da-da-da. Like, it's way easier to use reinforcement strategies, and people don't realize that. It's one thing that I learned about this and something that hopefully the listeners can take away from this is that when you're spending all your time punishing somebody and you're spending all this energy punishing somebody, when we talk about moving to reinforcement strategies and delivering reinforcers, we're not asking you to do more. You're already allocating the energy and the time to punishing somebody. Just take that and just allocate it to reinforcement and you'll be more effective and way happier. Yeah. And just incidentally, those people who for whom you use reinforcement with tend to want to try and reinforce your behavior too. And so you get in this sort of positive feedback loop of helping each other out that can make it a much I guess, more pleasant experience to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of the flip side of that is it's very easy for teachers to find themselves in a vicious cycle with reprimands where the immediate effect of the reprimand might be to reduce or eliminate problematic behavior that the teacher is dealing with. And that does temporarily make the teacher feel relieved, which of course, as we've mentioned several times now, is a negative reinforcer for the teacher who's now more likely to use those reprimands again the next time the behavior occurs. And they become increasingly stressed in that inversive environment that they've orchestrated 
orchestrated, not intentionally, again, this is a, this feedback loop thing, but have also found that temporary relief by using those reprimands or disciplinary measures. And you can often get the sense of justice or sort of heroicness for sticking out that unpleasant situation. And in a way, there's some comfortability in the familiarity with that routine as well, even though it is an aversive routine. So it gets into this feedback loop of, I make the behavior that I don't like go away, and so I'm more likely to try this aversive strategy again. And although it provides that temporary relief, it creates this really unpleasant context overall. Yeah, and that's not to say that teachers shouldn't use corrective statements or reprimands. We're not saying those things don't help, but those things alone are not effective in producing the kind of behavior you want to see or creating the type of environment that is conducive to learning either. You really run the risk of like, if all you're doing is corrective statements and all you're doing is reprimands, you're really doing a lot more damage than you might realize. Those have their place. There is definitely something to be learned from corrective feedback and reprimands when doing something wrong. And I think just going back to that five to one episode we did, it's really just trying to skew it more in favor of the positive. And actually going back to the example of video games you use, and I really like to think about this when I'm thinking about how am I going to help support someone whose behavior either needs to change or they wanted to change or whatever that circumstance is. And if all I have at my disposal is reinforcers, then what would that look like? And think of video games. Like video games can't actually punish behavior. There are things where if you don't complete a level or you try really hard at something and it doesn't work, that can be unpleasant. But the video game can't actually do anything to you other than that. All they really have to offer is rewards. And I think you can just look at any student who sat down to play video games and get a pretty good idea of how willing and motivated that person is to stick to that task for endless periods of time yeah if anybody sat down and played video games for hours and hours and hours and again all that video game has is a ton of reinforcers to throw at that at you you know the person who's playing video games so thinking about how do i get students to interact with this in a way that's even remotely similar to video games and it means relying on just those reinforcers as much as possible yeah exactly i think that you put that really well thank you so switching back to, we had just been talking about those programmed positive reinforcers and some of the incidental reinforcers and some of the research on that. Unfortunately, programmed negative reinforcement hasn't been thoroughly studied. And there's a few reasons for this. For one thing, it is unethical to specifically use something aversive that we think won't work or will result in harm just to confirm our suspicions. Yeah. So we're not going to introduce something that somebody doesn't like just to see if negative reinforcement is effective. That's what that's saying. It does, however, exist, these program negative reinforcers. And actually, we mentioned earlier that Ketchum being good, I actually ran into a teacher who had this strategy she wanted to use in her classroom to try and get the appropriate behaviors she was looking for. And she called it Ketchum being good. And she had this whole thing where there was this little pond and had the student's name in it. And there was like this fish hook going in the pond because there's going to catch them like catching a fish. Yeah, yeah. And what she did is every time they did something bad, she would take the fish out of the pond and put it on the hook. And then eventually they'd go out of the pond altogether and they'd lose their privileges. And so I don't know how she justified this in her own mind, but her strategy here was that she was actually catching them being bad. And she was specifically trying to emphasize and highlight them doing the incorrect things. And she called it catch them being good and had this cute little fishing pole thing, but really made this a very, very aversive and sort of toxic environment with that strategy. Some other examples of those negative reinforcers that are programmed are things like group rules, where you have rather than everybody 
everybody earns something, everybody loses some privilege if they don't accomplish this as a group. And that I think is commonly exemplified, especially with, I don't want to say team sports, generally speaking, but that when you have really competitive situations, you can see those group rules turn into things where they can be aversive and they end up working to avoid something. So when I was in high school, I played baseball for years and years and years. And when I was playing baseball, one of the things that we always try to avoid were these things called Highlanders. Okay. Highlanders are the absolute worst. If you've ever, if you've ever done any like conditioning for sports, Highlanders and baseball were the worst. And what we would have to do is we'd have to run from foul pole to foul pole on the baseball field. And we would have to run holding the baseball bat up over our head. And so you can imagine how tired you would get as a result of that. Wow. But when we would get punished, we would get punished. Say we had to run 12 Highlanders which is a ridiculous amount when you think about it, that was all contingent on the group. That was dependent on how we behaved on the bus on the way to games. That was contingent on a whole lot of different things. And so what we would do is actively as a team, we would engage in certain behaviors to avoid having to run Highlanders. Wow. But we hated our coach. Yeah. (laughs) What might be even more insidious than those programmed negative reinforcers are those incidental negative reinforcers. And this can look like the threat of losing a reward or grades getting sort of adverse peer attention, so getting made fun of and bullied and stuff like that, missing opportunities on things, feeling stupid, feeling bad, feeling uncomfortable, or often feeling vulnerable, and then getting sort of differential attention or preferential treatment or not in those situations, uh, getting dirty looks, having reduced engagement with the task. And these are all things that just sort of happen as a part of your day-to-day. And because we're not controlling for them, they can very powerfully influence behavior. Again, those aversive things suck, and we try to avoid them as much as possible. So they show up in this really important way for people and they can make an environment very unpleasant to be in, even though they're not specifically in place to do those things. So it makes it even more important than, in my opinion, to try and emphasize those positive reinforcers. Yeah. I mean, it's important to kind of reorient, I think, when we discuss this stuff, right? So we're not talking about those things being implemented. What we're talking about is the negative reinforcement piece. Those are things that we want to avoid, right? Those are things that the student wants to avoid. So we don't program a lot of negative reinforcement in relation to these things because these things are so aversive that it would be a problem to program it. Like, I'm not going to walk into a situation and be like, hey, Johnny, when Sadie walks in, give her a dirty look and then we're going to shape up some behaviors. Like, right. <laughs> that's just so nefarious, right? <laughs> if you really think about it. Yeah. But the thing is, is like these naturally occur negative reinforcement in those processes naturally occur. Right. So we can't always avoid them. So instead, what we have to do is we have to teach the skills around it to help support the student and give them all the skills they need so that maybe there's some more positive reinforcement. Maybe there's some more appropriate phrases and statements from the other students that help shape up a different kind of culture around that. Cool. Well, I think we're ready to wrap this up, take it home, all those things. You got anything else to add before we do that? No, I think we are there. I think we've arrived. Perfect. I do want to be clear as we're ending this, that we are not advocating to never use negative reinforcers or corrective statements or reprimands. Specifically, what we're really advocating instead is to use them strategically and try and use them as sparingly as possible, really just less often than you're using those more positive interventions. And I know we kind of threw around those terms positive and negative, but just to make sure we point out again, when we specifically say positive and negative reinforcement, and both of those cases, you're trying to increase a behavior. And one of those, the individual is working to earn something that they get. And in the negative reinforcement situation, they're working to avoid or eliminate something that they don't like. But in either case, they're working towards something. They are 
doing or increasing their behavior to get some kind of outcome, either to get something good out of something or some combination of those. Yeah, I think that nails it. And then when we talk about positive and negative reinforcers, they are reciprocally related. So what we mean is that when you work to avoid one thing, you're also probably working to get the opposite of that thing, right? I'm avoiding doing laundry, but I'm also playing video games. So I'm getting the best of both worlds. When we talk about positive and negative reinforcers, they're not generally isolated. They don't happen in a vacuum. They tend to happen together and they are two sides of the same coin. And I think ideally what you can get out of this conversation is just to be able to more accurately and thoroughly identify that that's what's happening in those classroom situations. And when you're trying to use those interventions what does it look like when you have those in terms of what are the negative reinforcers that are being created by that positive reinforcement system? Probably even more importantly, what is the positive reinforcement that is now being created by a negative reinforcement system? Because if you've created something where you have an aversive system that the students are working to avoid, well, what are they working to get then? Because there's something out there. And as you said, when you try and use those systems to suppress behavior, which Negative reinforcement is not punishment, but there are punishers that can be involved sometimes. Behavior just goes in all kinds of directions. It can look very, very different. Yep, absolutely. Very good. All right. So I think we can transition to a quick listener mail. Okay, so this is actually a correction. When we did our episode on disproportionality with Kent McIntosh, we said something to the effect that schools are more segregated now than ever. And he actually wrote in after he listened to the episode to say that he wanted to correct himself. He said it's actually that schools are more segregated now than since the desegregation following Brown versus the Board of Education in the 1950s. And he just wanted to make sure that we knew that so we could add that as a comment to hear that it was clear that that's what was being said. Because of course, when schools were 100% segregated for a period of time that they were more segregated then than they are now. But when the Supreme Court decision was passed in Brown versus Education to eliminate segregation in schools, then schools were integrated and then they've actually become segregated again over time. Right. Cool. So that makes sense. Yep. And I can see that working in schools when you're working like in special ed programs, the special ed programs tend to be a little bit away from the general pop, unfortunately. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's all we got. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for podcasting with me today, Shane. Is that a verb now? <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> so we already mentioned all the things of where you can find us and all that at the beginning. So, uh, hey, if you have anything you'd like to write into us about, about this episode or any other, we're very happy to hear from people. We enjoy reading your messages on our episodes, and then we'll just respond to you if you don't really have something that's a story or anything to be added. But if you want us to, we can. So that's all I've got. Thank you so much for listening. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.